we on episode three? Yep, this is three. Episode three, Sad Boys Book Club. My name's Dusty. And I'm Daniel. Welcome back. Um, it's been a really long next week, huh? Yeah, this one this one took a couple weeks. Um, I th- we we had some scheduling conflicts um, for in the over the last weekend, so took a little took us a, a brief hiatus. Um, yeah. But I do have some exciting news about something that happened in between these last couple of episodes. Oh. I I'm, I am pleased to announce that we have become the number one ranked English language literature podcast in Iceland. So first and foremost, I would love to thank all of our wonderful uh, Icelandic colleagues, Icelandic listeners, you know, we, we, we love you, we support you, even if you believe in elves, even if you spend a lot of time in your geothermally heated baths, we still love you. Thank you for your support. I'm going to be honest, I don't even know if that's there's a modicum of truth to that. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think anybody should look that up, actually. I think they should trust me implicitly here, because that's the kind of... Uh, that's the kind of podcast we're running here is is uh, 100% factual information. Well, I don't know enough about Iceland to refute you, so I'm going to take it as fact. They actually, they actually a, a good portion of uh, Icelandic people do believe in elves. It's like a like a fairly common cultural quirk. Yeah. Like more than 25%. Well. Um, for, I, I imagine the, the fans that were at the edge of their seat last Wednesday being like, where's the next episode of the Sad Boys Book Club? Those people being you and I, uh, no, we, we have at least one other confirmed listener and also the people in Iceland. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking, uh, it would have been last Thursday or Friday and I had a pretty busy weekend ahead of me. Uh, it would have been, what, the 11th and the 12th. So, my wife and I decided that, well, I decided and, and my wife graciously agreed, uh, and made a a major sacrifice for me that, uh, my Valentine's Day, my side of it was going to be celebrated last Saturday in the form of us going to go see Titanic in 3D together for its 25th anniversary, a movie in which I love and my wife doesn't hate, but does not share my opinion on. So that was my she's Saturday. Not a partisan of, uh, she's not a partisan of Big Jim Cameron? <laughs> no. Um, uh, I don't, it's not even that. Like, um, it's, it's just... I think there was a lot of Titanic um, watched uh, in the past that kind of <laughs> made it... that kind. Which, for me, that's not that big of a deal, but I guess I'm the weird one here. I like Titanic more than I probably should. Yeah, I, 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 I've, I've, you know what? I've never actually seen it. Are you serious? I've seen, no, I'm, I'm serious. I've not seen Titanic ever. All right. Which is so... strange given how, how frequently we, we, we hang, hung, we've hung out over the years. Yeah, so um, I'm going to go ahead and divert this podcast into the Sad Boys Titanic Club. 
and we're going to spend <laughs> the next two hours talking about Titanic. And I, Well, I'm going to be talking about Titanic, and you're going to be like, wow, this sounds like a great movie. I'm going to go watch it five times in a row, and that'll be the rest of your weekend. Are we going to become Titanic truthers on this this uh, on this journey, or are we are we going to stick to mostly the uh, the agreed narrative here? Yeah, um, I don't know how much you know about the plot, but um, James Cameron actually proved that uh, there's no way the door could have held. So, yeah, I I think they that they've done that. I think there is actually. One little piece I did know, the one little piece I do know about the, I mean, other than the, the famous uh, door it's, uh, situation, is that I think the book, the not the book, the movie is actually pretty well regarded by uh, Titanic scholars. Oh, uh, that would not surprise yeah. me. Uh, I know yeah. the two things that I know that are, is it two things? Let me think for a second here. Um, uh, the things that I know that are, like, factually inaccurate are how they handled, oh, what's her name? Uh, it's Kathy Bates' character, um, like, Big Maggie or something like that. How they handled her was inaccurate because in the movie, she's like, we gotta go back and pull some of those people out of the water, and the, the crew guy's just like, I will throw you off of this if you keep saying, if you keep talking, and that she sits down in, like, defeat. Whereas in actual history, she actually commandeered the boat and went back and rescued some people out of the water. It's a weird thing to kind of not have in the movie. I guess it makes it a little more tragic. But I know that, like, that's something that is inaccurate in the film. I feel like I feel like that's a, that's a pretty pretty big whiff there by old Jim. I mean, I th- that's, a, that's a great little sequence you got, got there. That's, that's practically made for a film. Well, I, I feel like the reason why he did that is it it would have taken away some of the the tension and the stakes of Jack and Rose. So that that would mm-hmm. be my guess. Like it would possibly hurt the story that he was telling. And it's one of those things to where it's like you know it's like the elves not being in Helm's Deep. I don't care. It made for a more enjoyable movie, so I will let it slide. We're back on. Yeah. Um. I forgot what the other. I have thing a question. Was. Is this is this lady was wasn't her name Molly Brown or something like that? Thank you. That's what it was. I I couldn't figure. Yeah. I I have been when I when I've uh, been to Denver and I I think they have a, a like a hotel not a hotel well maybe a hotel but the, they've mentioned her like museums like that her being she she after the Titanic disaster she lived out her days in Denver I think. And so there's they they have some stuff about her and her life and the Titanic and all that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was Molly Brown. I, I, I couldn't remember her name even though I saw the movie like I was watching it at this time seven days ago. But Yeah, I, I I'll have to I'll have to look, finally sit down and watch it. We, they weren't show, they didn't have any three uh, D showings near me. Um so I, I didn't I didn't go end up looking into it too much. Yeah, in my opinion, it is the last truly great James Cameron film, which, to be fair, he's only made two movies since then, that being Avatar and Avatar The Way of Water. And I, I Go ahead. Uh, I don't want to sit here and, and like go on this whole, like, Avatar's bad tirade, because that's, that's how I was until, like, a month ago. 
and before going to go see uh, The Way of Water in IMAX 3D, which is how I recommend anybody go see it, because it was a wonderful visual experience, uh, which the first one was, too. I saw the first one in 3D as well back when it came out originally. And it was a very cool visual experience, but it was my second time seeing it in like a, less than a month of it releasing. And I didn't really love it the first time, so I didn't really love it the second time. And it was like, oh, now i got to watch this three-hour movie that is a visual treat, but is about as entertaining as staring at a rock. So I didn't have as much fun watching the first one in 3D as I did watching the second one since it was the first time seeing it. But I rewatched <laughs> the first one the night before seeing the second one. And since it was my first time seeing it in, like, 13 years, I felt a little more soft on it. Like, it's not a great mm -hmm. movie, but it's not a bad movie at the same time. It's just kind of, it exists. It, it has really interesting world building. Like, I think the concept of Pandora is more interesting than the story that's told. And I think that also holds true for the second one. But I didn't hate the second one. I thought it was fine. Uh, it was a little more original than the first one, which was a nice breath of fresh air for me uh i didn't hate the characters mm -hmm. as much as a lot of people seem to like i thought the kid characters were fine honestly and i'm glad that the movie focused more on them rather than jake sully and natiri so nothing against zoe saldana like she was probably the best part of the first movie but sam worthington is not a good actor and 13 years has not made him any better of an actor so i am okay That's, with as know... little jake sully as possible it's kind of kind of wild what what's happened to Sam Worthington's career. Like he in the in the kind of the aughts, he was he was kind of like they they really tried to pitch him as like the next big actor guy. But it just he just, and he was in some pretty big like I mean, Avatar the original one. I think they they got over a billion with that one. But a lot of just like not so great films that he was in or good films that he was in that it just. His performance was just not particularly remarkable. At least most people didn't find them to be that. Off the top of my head, the only other movies I can name with Sam Worthington, I know I probably know more, this is just purely off the cuff, is he was in Terminator Salvation, which wasn't good. Uh, and then he was in Clash of the Titans, and was it called Clash of the Gods? The second one? I don't know, those two movies, regardless, and... I never saw them, but I heard that they were really bad. Oh, wait, what am I talking about? He, he's also Alex Mason in the Call of Duty Black Ops series, which is, like, the only thing I can, like, truly tolerate him in. Wow. That's uh, <clears throat> quite a... I, I, I want to say that's kind of a distance. <laughs> like, hey, best thing best thing you can do is uh, is is get out of my face. I mean, like if to, I can hear you, I can deal with listening to your voice. But if I see your face, I am turning off the screen right away. I mean, to be fair, you see? don't you don't see his face in Avatar two since he's he's in the he he is one hundred percent a Navi uh, by the end of the first movie. So he's in the blue zone. Yeah, he's he's blue pilled. Yeah. Um. That that really kind of went tangential for me saying I watched Titanic on Saturday and that's why we did that is purely the reason why we didn't record on Saturday was me being like yeah I'm gonna go see Titanic with, with the wife in 3D but to be and fair that, that ate my entire afternoon yeah and you also you also had your uh, your beloved Kansas City Chiefs 
yes. uh, won, their, won the Super Bowl. Yes, then the, So that's why we weren't able to do uh, the next the next day. Yes, Which, uh, we were talking about shout doing out to, it Sunday. Shout out to Patrick Mahomes. Shout out to the Kansas City Chiefs. So I am a uh, great game. Uh, I I will I will you know I will admit that like. I, I some people would definitely call me like a bandwagon fan, which is probably fair because I wasn't I wasn't a fan of the Chiefs before Mahomes, but I also wasn't a fan of football before before Mahomes. Like I hadn't been for like over a decade. I kind of fell out of love with it uh, after being essentially forced and force raised into being a Steelers fan, which was great <laughs> in the uh, the mid to late two thousands because they won the Super Bowl in 05 and 08 and then lost to the Packers in, in was it twenty ten. That sounds right. So, you know, two for three was cool when I was a kid, but I kind of fell out of love of football probably sometime after the uh, the second time Eli Manning beat uh, Tom Brady, which was very funny when I was a kid. It was funny the first time, then it was even funnier the second time. Uh, welcome to the Sad Boys Sports Club, by the way. <laughs> uh, what? So yeah, I, I had kind of fallen out of love of football, and I kind of got into the mindset through like my late teens and my early twenties, where I'm like, it's just stupid sport. Only stupid people like football. It's just people running into each other. It's so dumb. And it's just one of those like anti opinions. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I can understand given given the uh, the context in which uh, you and I were raised, where there was like a lot of um, a lot of pressure to to. Uh, not only watch football but participate in it. So I, I could see, you know, it, if if you have any kind of misgivings about, or just like, I don't know, if you just don't want to do it, it could, it, it can kind of rub you the wrong way. So I, I kind of gave gave you a pass for that. Yeah, say what you will about you know bandwagoning. I'm I'm personally of the opinion that uh, you should not have to live close to a team in order to be a fan of a team. I think that's just really dumb and really tribal. Like it, like like the teams you like for the reasons that you like, um, but like yeah, it, it was reading about and hearing about Mahomes and the Chiefs that kind of got me interested again because for me it kind of became stale. That's one of the reasons why I stopped watching. So having that spark essentially be reignited by like the new generation, like Mahomes was essentially the spark for me, and it kind of got me back into it. So obviously, <laughs> I kind of jumped in as a. I'm gonna see. I'm gonna check out these Chiefs and see, like, see if this is something that'll interest me. And funny enough, the first game I watched was Super Bowl 55, and watching them get absolutely decimated by Tom Brady. Yeah, the divisional round against the Bills last year was just insane. With the uh, with 13 second Mahomes driving down into field goal range to tie it up, that was just a crazy game. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it started with me getting into the Chiefs and being like, wow, this is actually like super fun and to watch and these guys are really talented and from there it's kind of expanded to where I'm just like watching a bunch of different teams because they have players that I just love. Like I fell in love with Jalen Hurts and the Eagles this year, which made the Super Bowl fantastic for me. Because I was like, man, this Eagles team has really impressed me. Jalen Hurts has really impressed me. Dallas Goddard has really impressed me. And it's like, you know, the Super Bowl was great for me because I wanted the Chiefs to win because they were they are now, I guess, my team. But the Eagles were so fun to watch this year that I was like, man, I can't even be upset if they win. They're just too good. But yeah, I also... Uh, Josh Allen also really impressed me last year. That made me kind of start following the Bills. Uh, I think he kind of has a bit of an attitude too much, but he was fun to watch. Joe Burrow's really fun to watch because he's really talented. Uh, 
man, the Jaguars really came out of nowhere this year and became really fun to watch. The Lions were really fun to watch. So it just kind of, you know, it kind of snowballs from there. It started with the Chiefs, so I'm going to love them as long as they have those players that I enjoy watching. But you also have all these other teams that are really fun to watch. So, yeah. Super Bowl was great this year. I'm very happy. (laughs) Well, I do have some bad news now. Uh, We have lost every single uh, Icelandic listener. Um, they, they have all, they have all turned it off and they were, they are now listening to the eager boys, uh, literature lobby, which is the second leading, uh, English language literature podcast in Iceland. Oh, oops. Um, <laughs> football is bad. Uh, oh, they're back. They're back. They're back. Hey, Daniel, you know what I would like to do? What is that? How about you and I go on some glacier adventures where we go hiking and caving while horseback riding and kayaking? Um, then we can also go watch some birds and study Viking heritage while playing golf. Wow, that sounds like a, a great time, in fact, especially the, the hiking and kayaking at the same time. Yes, um, I just Googled Iceland hobbies, so I needed to make sure that I get I get that... that um, totally real uh i almost said age group that's totally not right uh that regional audience back you know i i i i think iceland is actually pretty cool i remember um you know no uh, greenland is the one that's cool iceland is the one that's great (laughs) i i got you um but uh, what's what's his kojima when he went to i think kojima visited iceland a little bit before the production of um death stranding and you you can really see a lot of the uh the impact of like the iceland in the game like the very austere but kind of beautiful uh natural surroundings the like the 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 terrain is very icelandic i wish he would which is why when i when i played it uh, at first i was um I was a little thrown off because it uh, ostensibly takes place in America, but I was like, "This, this does not look like anywhere in America that I've seen." But uh, apparently, I think I think it's it's uh, actually a lot more representative of Iceland. I'm sorry, you were saying something. Go ahead. Um, I would have rather him have visited and studied an area that was a little more flat, personally. <laughs> well, you know, once you, once you get that that uh, director's cut. It, it helps out. You, you get you get quite a few things that help you out a little bit there. Yeah. I'll get around to it eventually once I finish the original. I don't know. Good. I, I, I really liked really liked those or that game. I thought it was... I, I didn't really expect to like it, but there's something about the, uh, the kind of the contemplative nature of it that I found like weirdly relaxing. Yeah. It almost reminds you of... Um really kind of abstract books like House of Leaves. Correct. It it, it does. <laughs> and and uh, what what luck that we are reading House of Leaves. Yes. So I should get a uh, a segue award for my remarkable segues into the topic of today's podcast. When we last left off, I I remember us talking a little bit about how we wanted to talk about um, exploration 4. Because we, we kind of, where we were at in the story, they'd already kind of started that, but we wanted to kind of touch on it cohesively as as we kind of, as the event came to a conclusion, 
I guess, of sorts. And uh, now, now where we're at in the book, uh, the expedition, uh, such as it was, has has come to an end, um, a rather grisly end, in fact. So I, I, un unfortunately, um, your your friend um, Jed, uh, Jed's dead. Oh boy, is he? Uh, Got a bullet in his head. The only person I was, actually really he was wanted made to of lead. <laughs> He was the only person I wanted to survive in this whole thing. I knew he wasn't going to. I'm like, I, I'm like, no. I'm thinking if we're lucky, maybe one person will. I, I had already written Holloway off because of the uh, what we were given of exploration for at the beginning of the book. Uh, I'd already written the him only off. Only way Jed could have been more obviously going to die is if um, Danielewski had written, and he was wearing a red shirt as he entered the the. Uh, the hallway, you know, so he was, he's about as, they were really kind of telegraphing that one. Yeah. And as they were walking into the hallway, Jed said to Navidson, Ooh, I can't wait until we break through and get the payday from this because I need to fund my foundation for orphan kids and puppies. And he totally would have done that, because Jeb was an upstanding guy. Yeah, then Navidson replied, You are a good man, Jed, and I cannot wait to see you again. <laughs> don't don't worry about your fiancé. You have uh, a good just, head I... on your shoulders. But yeah, it's, um, so the, the exploration form, that was kind of a, it, it's kind of a, I don't know, I, I thought that, that that's kind of an interesting sort of microcosm of a lot of the things that Daniel Levski is wanting to kind of talk about here. You yeah. know, it's just the, like the, um, the hubris of, of man kind of in, in the face of this, of the unknown and the unknowable, the, uh, the sort of like, and the, the, then there's the, uh, the interpersonal conflict. It's, it's, it's not only do you have like, um, the sort of postmodern, uh, man versus, man versus the unknowable kind of conceit here. You also kind of have that, that classic, uh, you know, man versus self in the terms, in terms of like Holloway, you know, kind of succumbing to his own, uh, you know, lust for, for adventure and notoriety and, um, you know, how it ends up costing them. Um, but, you know, speaking of, he, he basically, they went into the, the hallway how many days were they in before he decided to go sicko mode? It was like, like eight. It was, oh, it was, was it eight days? Okay. Yeah. I, for some reason, I thought that that happened on like, uh, again, it's been a couple, couple weeks since we've read that portion, but I think, <laughs> I guess it was eight days before he, he just totally snapped. Yeah. Um, well, I think he, um, I think, Holloway wasn't going in fully cocked, so to say. Because... Uh, it, it, go ahead. Uh, because um, it almost feels like... Which I think Danielewski all but says this in, in, the, in the text through Zapano that um, mm -hmm. I feel like for him, he was there for the monster and not for... I mean, I don't, I don't even know, like, what's the end game at this point, other than, 
because there's for Navidson and Holloway, it's, there's this I, idea of fame from it, but with Holloway, I feel like it's about the hunt, and Navidson, I I feel like it's about this unknown entity being the the hallway, the labyrinth, all of that. But what's the the actual plan here, other than get to the bottom of the staircase? Like then what? What's what's the what's the exploration culminating in other than just yeah, let's just go down there and see what happens. And then we'll come back and then we'll go back down there and see what happens. Then we'll come back and then go down there and see what happens. I think it's it's kind of like a, a caving expedition. So I think in theory <clears throat> he wants to go this is my interpretation of Holloway's motivation here. He wants to go down as deep as he possibly can go. Uh, presumably, I think he's looking for the end, such as it can exist in this um, in the in the house. Um, I think he just wants to go there, reach the end, and then come back and then say, "Hey, look! I just explored the this massive uh, domain that, by all laws of physics, should not exist." And then you know, thus get get a bunch of notoriety um, from from that because I think he does run a the, like some sort of expedition company, which I guess they those still exist, you know I guess. But I think I think that's that was I think that was his original motivation is he wanted to really make his name, you know, so that his company could really uh, I guess reap the benefit of that. Yeah, he wanted to Lewis and Clark that shit. He was, he was, he was like, I, by the end of this journey, my name is going to be Lewis Clark. I'm not, <laughs> nobody, nobody's going to be more of the, the king of adventure than I am. Would I think that, that, that was his goal. Would, he wanted to be, he wanted to be that guy. Would that have made Jed but, Sacagawea? Uh, um, I think that would make, that would make uh, Jed... I don't. I. I don't even know. I don't think there's. There's an animal. Was there somebody on the, on the. Uh, well, he was the navigation the... expert. He was the guy that was supposed to know always, which way's north, ostensibly. Oh, um. I guess. I guess of sorts. <laughs> I guess of a sort. He could. He could be um, analogous there. But he's. <clears throat> but. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure that. Um, there is like a very, I, I, I think uh, with a lot of this, there's the, the unclear, the un- unclarity of motivation, I think is something of the point is like, it, it's this idea of like, so not only the house uh, existing as the sort of unknowable, like mystery, but it's it and end of the uh, uh, Zampano's work also being this sort of semi-indecipherable at times kind of like mystery it's it's i think i think this is a lot also a lot about how it's it's some it's difficult to know other people you know their own hidden depths and i think that's something that they he kind of touches on when he when he goes through and he, he mentions um oftentimes with women but you know just but really with anybody they're, they're like the how past traumas both mental and physical um create these dimensions within people that are much like hallway kind of dark and 
and uh, difficult to um, to understand and comprehend, you know? Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, we got Wax, who's just kind of there. <clears throat> Wax, the mountain party boy, who, who was the first one to get shot, actually, before mm-hmm. Jed. Um, <clears throat> he fell for the classic, oh, look, it's a jug of water trap. <laughs> Yeah, that that was that was wild. That was why I. So I guess let's talk about a little bit about um, why about the sicko mode um, moment that that Holloway went down. So I think from from what we can interpret from Holloway is and and again the we we are once again struck with the the problem of the unreliable uh, narrator here is uh, Holloway mentions that. That uh, he thought Wax was the monster because he was he saw him from a distance. After they, I guess we if we back up a little bit uh, before that incident, um, Holloway or uh, Wax and Jed were pretty adamant that that they needed to turn back. And uh, Holloway, of course, as we mentioned, totally totally um, drunk on power and uh, a lust for fame. And also probably a, a not insignificant amount of a, just a sunk cost fallacy. Like a, we've already come this far, we have to we have to see it through. Um, but a lot of that was they 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 just kind of they they didn't feel that way, so they they decided to turn around. And um, he did not like that, um, so that they didn't leave on the best of terms. So I think there there is I think something of like a. As we see with the the later behavior of Holloway, I think there, I'm not entirely convinced that he didn't willfully kill them. Yeah, I think that his excuse is pretty paper thin, especially since after he shoots Wax in the shoulder, I think it was right. Yeah. Um. He just kind of keeps going at it. Like he's chasing after yeah, both can. of them. As soon as Jed turns on his light, he fires in their direction. So he's having to like travel uh, in the dark, ostensibly. And there's no way. Well, okay. So this is the second time they they Holloway ambushes them because the first time when he shoots Wax, he's just like, "Oh damn, thought you were the monster." Anyways, and he just leaves. That was so weird. Like that. That was such a, a bizarre passage about him. Like kind of running up to them, and and Jed just imploring him to be like, "Come on, look, we can just say it was an accident. Let's just get it." Because I think I, I don't think Jed fully believed it was an accident in that moment, but I think he was just he wanted he wanted Holloway to to uh, not do what he ultimately did, which was to essentially abandon them to to their deaths and or or just kill them in that moment. Yeah, he's just like, no, I can't go to prison. I'm gonna go to prison. And Jed's like, no, you ain't, dude. It's cool. Just let's let's just get out of here. It's fine. He's like, no, no, no. I'm definitely going to prison. All right, bye. <laughs> he just leaves. <laughs> it's like he just man, runs out into the darkness. Uh, I don't think there's some screws loose. I don't. I think the screws are missing at this point. The I think at this point it's like, what screws? But yeah. So then he finds them later again, and just. It's just I'm gonna kill you now. It's just uh, I'm too far gone. So I think he's he, he kind of came to that conclusion. Uh, he was just like 
he was like he, he did definitely there was some sort of mental calculus there in which he decided no i'm i'm just going to kill them i think again it's it's kind of a sunk cost fallacy this idea of like i've already i've already gone so far in uh in shooting wax i might as well finish them off because otherwise they're going to tell um Navidson, the world, the police, you know, whatever, um, <clears throat> that there's a crazy guy down there with a rifle just blasting anybody he comes into contact with at this point. Do you think the temporal labyrinth uh, works like international waters do? <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I, I would be, okay, from a philosophical equip, uh, perspective, a philosophical um, bent, I would say maybe I would be I would be inclined to say yes. Um, however, I, I I think the legal system would hold that that this this uh, is a, a violation of American laws. Yeah, at the trial, that's not to to excuse him, of course, for his um, his his acts. That's not what I intend at all. But I'm just just like. From a purely philosophical perspective, I, I don't know that you can. I'm not even sure that the um, that the this this metaphysical anomaly space can be even categorized as being on Earth. To be quite frank with you. Yeah, at the trial at Holloway's trial, the the defense attorney pulls up a video from the the Navidson report of the dogs, and he uh, he's like, "If the dogs don't fit, you must acquit." <laughs> if it yeah that that's pretty much if if the dogs can't fit you must acquit that's that's pretty much that's that's the beginning and ending of of my uh, w- uh not of my of 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 the legal defense of of Holloway there it's like look I'm uh, you know <laughs> it it if if it's if it, it doesn't count if it's in a parallel dimension uh, of unending hallways, and uh, and also of of just a t- hypothetical minotaur. <clears throat> Look, if the murder is committed in the presence of a minotaur, it does not count. <laughs> yeah, it that's the that's the the, the minotaur defense. Um, but I think I, I, kind of along the lines of the the this idea of the minotaur and all the other stuff. Um, <clears throat> As as Wax and um, Jed were leaving after they parted ways with Holloway after following him down, and this is okay. I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm doing a tangent to a tangent here, but you, you guys you'll have to bear with me here. Um, <clears throat> this is this is interesting because this is kind of uh, an idea that I have that's that's kind of been germinating. Is this idea that the the the, the interior space of the hallway is not fixed and we know this but i think some uh, one factor that is a determinant um is the psychological um the way that that the the person that's entering the space how they perceive things i think will will warp the space in some way or another i think for instance i think that's why it it was so the the staircase for them they were going down it for days and days and days. It was because in some really, in some really 
insidious way the the house or the minotaur whatever whatever entity is in control of this space knew what they were looking for or knew their expectation somehow this idea that they were going to uh, go on this long journey and they were going to find something and in in that way it kind of warped the dimensions of the house to this unimaginable level where they're having to go down they're they're going down for days and days on end however as we see later when Navidson goes to uh, to try to save them they're able to uh, rig up a, a pulley system using a, a pretty standard rope so you know I think there's there's something about this idea of how expectation creates or informs in a large part the reality of of this world that they're in. Yeah. I just want to quickly say uh he has a name uh and it's Mr. Monster. <laughs> Mr. Monster. Shout out to Tom. Yeah. The unsung hero of the Navidson record, Tom who is afraid of going down the stairs. But you know what? I gotta say, it 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 uh, it really worked out for them. His his fear of going down the stairs. Yeah. Um, but backing it, we'll we'll get back to Tom. But um. So so as they were as they're after they parted um from Holloway, uh, Wax and Jed, as they're coming back up, they're finding they they they've left some supply caches, and this is a thing I thought was actually like a really cool really smart idea is like leaving at regular intervals and marking uh, supply caches as they're heading down the steps. Cause yeah. I, I think that, that that would make it just so much easier to, uh, to on, on a return trip to not have to lug all that stuff up with you and also save you a lot of energy heading down. Yeah. Um, but as they're, as they're coming up they're they're finding the, the, these caches and they're seeing that they're being more and more, I want to say interfered with because they're not all like some, there is like some of them are destroyed and some of them are tampered with, you know, you got things opened, you have like some of the, the neon marker um, being ripped off the wall, that kind of stuff. Um, as, and especially as they're, you know, surfacing more and more, um, you, you start to see um, the interference increasing as they, as they go up. Which is something I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I would have figured, you know, the further you go in, the more you would you would uh, be subject to this this presence of the the Minotaur. I, I, however, however he, what in whatever form he might be, um, but that does not actually necessarily seem to be the case. Um, also, as we saw. With our good friend Tom, he he seems to just kind of. I don't know. I I don't think that it's necessarily depth. I think I think he just he likes to hang out. I think actually pretty close to the surface. Because he's kind of out there, kind of uh, kind of haunting Tom, so to say, and then as Tom decides he's gonna like start descending, he hears him like right next to him. And then he, he runs out. Yeah, that was a cool little bit with the uh, when Tom 
when Davidson's like, hey, Tom, I need you to come down the stairs. And Tom's starting to do it. And then everything's just going weird and, and just crazy. He's just like, nope, 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 can't do it. And he just leaves. <laughs> I was so disappointed in Tom. I, I, can, I mean, I understood, but I was so disappointed. And then he comes back through. He, he rigs up the, the pulley um, to, to get them out. Oh, I was like, oh, Tom, yeah. I am so sorry I ever doubted you. Yeah, cue the, that scene from Dumb and Dumber. I think you pull a stunt like that and totally redeem yourself. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's see. Uh, but where we were with uh, got our, our pals Wax and, um, Wax and Jet. So they, they, they go off into this hallway. How how do they re-encounter um, Holloway? Hall, All this saying Holloway and Hallway is I, is, is think, giving me semantic satiation. I can't I, I can't tell them apart anymore. I think he just starts shooting at him again, and they're like, "Oh shit!" And then they have to go. Well, they they I think they like they like break off. I think they hear something, and they break off into a little a little one of the hallways, like just off one of these landings that they get to as they go up the stairs, and that's where they encounter him. Or at least that's, that's, that was my recollection of it. Let me see, let me consult my notes real quick. Okay, so yeah, it, it just, it looks like, it looks like that, that's kind of what happened, is he, you know, just consulting my notes here, it looks like Holloway just, he basically kind of, leaves them to their own devices the earlier, but then later like he just he's had a full break with reality and he comes just comes out of nowhere and starts shooting at them again. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I guess I guess they, it was almost like he was just looking for them. And he was just like, no, I I've, I've had enough. And I think I think that's kind of a thing. I think that they it was it was his desire because there's he he's going deeper in and they're going up. They're going back up. And somehow he beats them to where they're at, and and then finds them to kill them. I think there is a very, this is this is another example of the the psychology of the of of the person that enters the house, um, impacting in some way how they are able to move through it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It it definitely uh, seems like how it's set up there is just no it's not really news that there's no rhyme or reason to how it goes what with the staircase taking what three four days for them to get down and then with Davidson it's 100 feet uh Mm -hmm. it it, Holloway could not have gotten to them again especially at level with them unless one there was some other staircase he found or two the the hallways were just like yeah you're suddenly like a couple hours up in terms of uh, elevation, so here you go, you're back at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. And as I'm looking at the book again, this is this is there's some kind of interesting things um, that are happening in terms of how the book is being presented. Like at this po- portion, there's there's like it's difficult to to just describe it i think you would have to almost own the book yourself and so i'm looking at you know especially around page 120 121 through really i think pretty much 1 150 almost like there's there's this uh, running along the sides of the 
of the text are these like the it's citing these houses and and buildings of a particular architectural style on the left side and these this just interminably long list of names on the right side uh citing all these these people um and then as as it's going through one thing i think that's kind of interesting there's this blue box of text and as you kind of read it it looks it it reads as like a, a bit of like a a list of it's it's one it, it started it starts off as a footnote kind of talking about this architectural feature of the house but and it just goes on for pages and pages like almost 20 pages um, but it's 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 this little tiny box that takes up maybe the a little bit little section on the right side and what's interesting about it is that when you you, you can read it then you look on the reverse side and you see that it's what you just read in reverse so and it's almost like you're kind of looking through it like it's transparent and yeah. you're, you're reading it's that's kind of an interesting little thing there yeah that uh it's it's definitely cool from a from an aesthetic standpoint but that whole section kind of annoyed me because you have like on the margins you have just useless information and then even in those boxes it's just useless information and i just have to ask why what's the point yeah i think that's that's one thing that's kind of um and we kind of get as we're in this section um johnny is is calling out zampano again where he says um He's he just he essentially what he says is um, Zampano is just incredibly pretentious like all of these things that he does and his his use of like untranslated foreign language quotes usually in French he just he's like um, it doesn't make any sense it 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 says nothing about Holloway's choices or Jed's request nothing you know it doesn't even seem remotely applicable so I think I think there's something there. Um, but you kind of run into the problem. This is one of the the, uh, the the big problems of parody when you when you can no longer really differentiate between um, the subject of a parody and the parody itself. It's like this idea of like you know the, these impenetrable and confusing texts by academics and pseudo academics like um, like Zampano. It's 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 regardless of whether or not it's done intentionally or parodically, it, it's kind of either way. It, 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 it's not really, I don't find it particularly helpful or uh, explicative or really just anything in terms of how, how it, it's, it, it helps the, the novel as, as a whole. Now there are other things that happen. Um, the other little little uh, choices that uh, Zampano slash Danielewski makes that do um, really kind of a great job of uh, capturing the feel of something um, in a visual way, but using the, the text on the page. Um, 
which is you know to kind of to kind of bring us back here to uh to uh wax and jed on the stairs uh or not on the stairs i guess at this point at this point i think they were they ran from holloway and they're kind of in hiding in this little room this little side room um the, here we go again kind of with you know jed he's tapping on the wall he's banging on the wall trying to get uh the attention of of uh Navidson and uh his family inside and he's uh so he's he's knocking but what's interesting um here is that he's just knocking but what 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 the what they're hearing um is or what what Navidson and his family hear is the s a tap them tap is the tapped out version of the SOS signal um, but that's not what, as we you see when you see what Jed is doing, and they they they, they kind of like juxtapose them side by side. That's not he's he's just he's just knocking on it. The house is somehow taking the intentionality and the psychology of Jed, and it's translating it um, back to them as as this uh, as as what it is. It's an SOS. It's a it's a call for help. Yeah, which makes you wonder. How much of the the house is malicious? I think that's a fair question. I don't. <clears throat> if the house and the Minotaur can be said to be distinct entities, uh, or even if they are distinct entities, and the the house is under whether it is or is not influenced by the Minotaur, I don't think. I think the house is not really um, malicious in and of itself. I think it is just um, a catalyst almost. Like it just, whatever whatever you are bringing into the house <clears throat> is is what it, it's kind of like the uh, the, the evil tree <laughs> in, in, uh, in uh, Empire Strikes Back that Luke goes into, you know, and he asks, you know, he asks Yoda what, what's in there and Yoda pretty much gives him that. He's like, he's like, you, what you bring into it is what you're going to uncover in there, and that's kind of, that's kind of what, what I think we're seeing in terms of the, uh, the, the people, the the expeditionary party so far. I think that's very explicative of of what of what, of their experience here. Um, and then <clears throat> Zampano does this thing that I find um, <clears throat> very curious, where he 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 likens this um, this doomed expedition to another couple of expeditions that that had a mutiny, and <clears throat> I don't know. I, I I at at first I sort of took exception to this idea that um, Wax and uh, Wax and Jed were, were were staging a mutiny as such. It was almost really a mutiny from above, like this idea of because like, Holloway is really in in charge here, and yet he he kind of refused to to see reason, and he he kind of because I don't think Navidson's parameters that he he gave to Holloway were necessarily like a a strict like. You have to do X. Like that, I think going in their mission parameters were very vague, and I think that's another reason why 
um, this, um, like many other uh, 20th century or early 21st century um, expeditions, campaigns, what have you, this going in with very loosely set parameters um, leading to extreme disaster and death um, is like the, the, this idea. So they, they went in without a lot of um, a lot of foresight and thought here. And it kind of ended in a terrible way. So I that's kind of my, my little thing here is I, I don't know that I would count them as mutineers per se. I think Holloway was really the one that's just kind of he just totally, you know, lost all sense of proportionality and comportment. Um, but anyway, he, he kind of mentions a couple of uh, famous mutinies, including uh, I actually didn't know too much about uh, Magellan and his his um, his one of his, his expeditions. He kind of he kind of mentions it and it's kind of the, the mutiny is kind of put down. Um, yeah, that was and then there's funny. kind of like this. Oh, go ahead. That was just kind of funny to read about. That was that was kind of amusing. Um, he also kind of uh, likens it to the the Hudson expedition, uh, in, in mapping out what would later be uh, Hudson Bay. I thought that was a lot more um, a lot more uh, applicable as like this idea of like going into the cold, and uh, you know being left for dead, left without left without rations and all that. I thought that I think that's more. Um, more of a more of a one to one here. Uh, he also mentions the the mutiny on the Skylab over over uh, bad working conditions and a difficult uh, relationship with the uh, the the commander the the commander over the mission. Let's see, and then he also quoted he also committed one of the what potentially what some people consider a sin. Is this um, this quote? He quotes heavily also from uh, Coleridge's "Rime of the Ancient Mariner." Um, yeah, this this yeah, and a lot of this stuff like space, like um, the Hudson expedition, they, it brings to a lot of like cold imagery of coldness. I think that's one of the things that that they, they mentioned, they, they keep going back to is this idea that the house is this cold place, you know, it's, it's, you know, cause the rhyme of the ancient Mariner portion we're talking about and ice mast high came floating by as green as an emerald, you know, this, uh, this, the land of, of ice and of fearful sounds where no living thing was to be seen, you know, it's just that I think, I think he quotes, he quotes that quite aptly, um, is this this idea of this this very cold, um, dead place? Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, as you know, we go along, we, we get a little bit more. Uh, <clears throat> he uh, Danielewski slash Zampano uh, hits this theme again of like, while in the past live footage was limited to the aftermath. The oral histories given by the survivors or are photographs taken by pedestrians. These days, the proliferation of affordable video cameras and tapes have created more of an opportunity for someone to record a plane wreck or bank robbery as it is actually taking place. Of course, no documentary is ever entirely absolved from the suspicion that 
that the mise-en-scene may have been caref carefully designed uh, with action staged or lines written and rehearsed, much of which of these days is carried out under the appellation of reenactment. So, you know, it's and then he kind of mentions some other things, you know, where, where that where that might have happened. Uh, he also has a reference to um, America's Funniest Home Videos, which apparently is still your your parents are probably still watching. <laughs> apparently, that, that's still on the air. Um, and he kind of ends. Currently, the greatest threat comes from the area of digital manipulation. And so, as this, it's interesting because we've kind of—I know we've talked um, at length about that idea, but I think it's interesting that he kind of comes out directly and he he addresses it, um, and he alleges that the um, New York Times ran an article about it, which perhaps they did at some point, but uh, you know, who who can say with with this book, you know, which which of these uh, footnotes are and aren't true yeah which with that i'd like to talk about this so mm. i gotta be honest with you mm. i'm kind of getting tired of the whole as so and so once said and then quote by them footnote with the book and then as so and so said about so and so and then a quote from them it just it just Especially since I know that most of these are fake. Probably all of them are fake. Unless it's something that is mm -hmm. actually real, cited from history thing or whatever. It, it I but don't know. Some it's... of them are real. I've, I've, I've looked at some of them. I, and I should have done... That's something looking back. I, I wish I had done a better job of is mentioning which of these that I found that are real. And there's also some that are interesting that they are... I can't tell whether they are real because they are like legitimately real, like, or if they were created by fans after the fact, you know? Yeah. But it's just, I don't know. It's, it's getting kind of old for me to have Zampano go on these huge, like they're, I guess by his technicality, they wouldn't be tangents or rants or anything, but to me, they just feel super unnecessary. And just him being like, I am a very smart intellectual, and I'm going to show you why I'm a very smart intellectual by telling you things that are tangentially related to the story I'm trying to tell you, but have nothing really to do with anything other than just filling up my word count. And it, it, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's so, it feels so unnecessary and bloated to just have him constantly go off on things that he feels relates to the Navidson record, but to me it's just a major time waster. Cause like, I don't care about, you know, how it relates to echoes or what this has to do with, um, when they're a, a bit about, no, that was with Johnny. That was a Johnny thing. I'll get to that later. Um, yeah, it's, he goes off on these huge expanses where he's talking about how all of these different authors who have written about either, the Navidson record specifically, or something that he can correlate to the Navidson record in terms of like similar themes or ideas, and then just writes all this stuff about what they're saying. And then it also kind of, I would count it as well when he's going into the thing about the mutinies that, that relate. And I just feel like he just kind of loses, he, he loses me at least. And I think he kind of loses the plot 
because this is supposed to be essentially a recounting of the Navidson record, and then it just basically becomes a bibliography at some point. <laughs> and I don't know. To me, I, I I'm starting to kind of glaze over with Zapano's work that isn't solely focused on the Navidson record yeah, I think, itself. I think that's... I think I think we both kind of have voiced that here today is kind of there's I think there's a little bit of um, whether these are choices that Danielewski is imputing to Zampano or his own choices in in how he's presenting this book. I think it's kind of it's it's maybe wearing on us just a little bit. I think it's I think we're kind of getting to the point where there's like diminishing returns with some of these things. Yeah, like um, I, I feel like I've spent a lot of time reading stuff that I feel personally does not enhance my enjoyment or understanding of the book itself. It just feels like fluff, intellectual, like pseudo intellectual fluff that is supposed to be <laughs> a you just don't have a high enough IQ to understand Zapano kind of thing. I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think that may be to to a certain extent. I think it's, but I think what it's supposed to be more is like this idea. It's supposed to mimic the house, right? In this sense of like, you're you're going through these 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 hallways of like it's just, but you're not really sure where it's going, and you're not really sure what what the um what what we're supposed to be taking from it's it's just you're supposed to feel kind of like lost and um, kind of surrounded by the text you know i think it's i think that's what he's trying to kind of create in you is like this this sense of being like all of these these individual pathways branching off of the main narrative that that uh, are just that that themselves can branch off through and in, in infinite um and sundry ways it's just it's just kind of like like I was saying. It's like there's the intent behind it makes it artistic, but it doesn't necessarily make it um, particularly engaging for the the reader. Um, and that's something that I kind of sh- I, I I think that's something that we are both beginning to struggle with here. Well, I wouldn't mind that so much, if not for the fact that at least to me. That's what I feel like we're already getting through Johnny Truant. So it almost feels mm-hmm. like he's double dipping into this concept through both Zapano and Johnny. And it's just not really working for me anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's their diminishing returns. It's to the point where you're, yeah, it's, it's happening too much. Yeah. And it's also, and maybe this is because of Zapano, uh, it happening with Zapano as well, but it's it's really starting to hurt with Johnny Truen as well, um, to really quickly go into this. Um, oh god, what was the story for? Was it the, um, which one was it? Is it about okay. the Burns? Okay. So... The entire point of the story that Johnny is telling is how Texas and Texas are two different things. And there's like, it's what, like two pages where he just goes on this literary blurb talking about, I couldn't even tell you what, 
and it it's because uh, it all stemmed from him having that memory just click for him, and suddenly he gets that wash of clarity when he was uh, talking with Ashley, who ended up not being Thumper, by the way. I was wrong about that. Um, when he was talking to her, and she was just like, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to have sex with you uh, when back at, at in, in, in Texas. And he's like, I've never been to Texas. And then there's that moment of clarity where he's like, oh, not Texas, the state. The name Tex at Texas house. Ah, and then he has that, like, moment of clarity but then he goes on talking about like i think at one point he's talking about the moon and the sea or (laughs) no 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 it was um it was like the oh god was it the fisherman what was he talking about it was this it was the boat yeah it was that boat that capsized and it had like it was the boat that capsized and there was a grease fire or an oil fire that caused an explosion and the boat sank. <laughs> and there was that one guy that was left sealed in that cabin who I'm assuming suffocated to death or died from the pressure or a combination of both. And this is all... You would be the expert now after having seen the Titanic again. Well, the Titanic doesn't pull a Prometheus and flip over. But... That's true. But he's talking about this shipwreck that happens and everybody dying on this shipwreck and the scout plane not even knowing where it was at because they sank in 12 minutes and all of this stuff. And it's all supposed to be, I guess, an allegory for a memory coming back to him. That is supposed to relate to him meeting this girl that he fell in love with at Texas that he didn't see until like what a decade or so later. He said he was eighteen, and then has yeah, sex with her so, the weekend before. Seven to ten years later. Yeah, and then he has sex with her the weekend before her wedding or whatever it was. And it's just it's it's one of those things where I think my eyes kind of glaze over, and I'm reading it, but I'm not really absorbing it anymore. But I'm aware of it. And it's just, it's it's starting to become a little too much for me to the point to where I'm honestly considering just skipping these, these sections. I probably won't because I'm stubborn. But I'm honestly considering it to where, because I'm really interested in Johnny's commentary because I honestly, I said this last time, I find his story more interesting than the Navidson report. And I also really... I'm really engaged with the Navidson report at the same time. So there's these two really cool stories that are being told together that are really interesting, but there's so much useless fluff just being thrown into it to pad it out. It's almost like it's, it's kind of like when you're playing a really, really good video game that has a great story and great characters and you love following it, but then you hit a roadblock and it says you cannot progress the story until you complete these 13 fetch quests. And the fetch quests are basically, hello, hero, my sheep ran off and is in the next town over. Can you go over to the next town over and very slowly escort my sheep back to my pen? It's just like stuff like that. And it's like what it feels like for an equivalency. And I can't get back to the things I'm interested in 
until I just slog through this useless, very prettily written information dump that has no real relevance to anything. And I do feel like it is hurting my opinion on the book overall. I feel like I've kind of started to... You can probably take a lot of what I've said from episode one all the way to now and find a general downward slope on my opinion of this book. Even though the story has gotten better, the book experience, I feel like, has gotten worse because of it. Uh, At least that's how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just... It's a lot, and it's it feels like it's getting not necessarily worse, because I feel like it's stayed pretty consistent on how much it's been happening. It's just, it's you know, it's like you said, it's diminishing returns. I'm getting fatigued from it to the point to where... I it, It's not me being like, I'm ready to be done with this book. I'm just ready to be done with this filler nonsense. Sure. I think that's fair. And, um... It's kind of interesting, actually, as this section that we read went on, it kind of had, it started doing the inverse, right? Where where here you're seeing all this sort of like these endless cascading pages of nonsense. We, we started getting pages that were just very short and to the point. Um, so, you know, they as, as where we were, we were talking about, uh, Wax and Jed, they, they'd gone down into the... Uh, into the, or they they went off to this passage, and Jed is beating on the wall, trying to get send some message to the Navidsons because the radio doesn't work anymore at, at the depth that they're at. And so Navidson, and and Reston and Tom, they they mount this expedition, and they they head in, um, and Karen, uh, true to her her word, is seemingly like, at this point, she seems that she's pretty much done with the relationship. I think she's, she's. Where she's considered, I think she's staying out of some sort of residual, uh, staying at and and listening out for them as sort of a residual uh, love for Navidson and for the family. But I think after this, um, the way she, at least when in some of her conversations with with uh, Tom over the radio, she's she seems like she's pretty much done here with the relationship. Uh, but anyway, they they go in, uh, Navidson, Reston, and Tom, and uh, Reston and and. Um, and Navidson, they they start they descend into the and in, further into the into the house. And Tom's he's hanging back as kind of like a a radio relay of sorts. Um, he's hanging out. He's and we we see this interesting portion uh, of the of the book that's just like a, a, a running transcript of the things that Tom is saying, talking to himself. And he's making these sort of silly ribald jokes. Um, he's, he's smoking some weed. He's talking to, to what, to the monster, um, or at least what he thinks he is anyway. He keeps referring to him as Mr. Monster. He's talking to Karen over the radio. And Karen is, is sharing her thoughts about how she, she wants Davidson to come back. But at the same time, she's kind of, like I said, she's pretty much done with the relationship. He's trying to play a peacemaker, but I think. I think I think it's pretty much just done at this point. But anyway, we we go and we start to see uh, Navidson, and as Navidson and Reston um, descend through the cave, or descend through the house, um, the pages start to have fewer and fewer words, to the point where it's like like a paragraph and a half on a page. Not even. And so they're, you're right, and uh, it even gets down to the 
to a to a blank page at one point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of going it's kind of going through this um, as they're 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 nearing uh, Wax and Reston. They they hear this door, um, and from behind the door, they can hear like this sort of whimpering sound. So they start like beating, trying to beat down the door, and they kind of. Um, and it's, it's interesting because they, they also mention um, that, that Navidson also has his, or, yeah, not Navidson, Reston is filming it. And they beat down the door, and they find Wax and Jed. They're just totally, like, suffering from from the infection in, in Wax's case, and this just abject exhaustion in the case of Jed. And we are just, they're, 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 there's horrified at first because they think, that the behind the door, I'm not sure why Navidson doesn't think to call out like, "Hey, it's me, it's Navidson." <laughs> you know, I'm here to here to get you guys out. But he, so so Jed is convinced that it's either Holloway or the monster or something, and he's he's basically dead. <clears throat> so he's 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 horrified, and then he so after Navidson beats through the door, he's he's relieved. He's you know they're they're laughing, they're crying. You know, they're just, <clears throat> and, and the, it kind of ends with this this uh, this little bit here. In a scattering of seconds, a 33-year-old man from Vineland, New Jersey, who loves to drink Seattle coffee and listen to Lyle Lovett with his fiance, learns his sentence has been remitted. He will live. And then, and, and then, then he gets shot in the face. Exactly. Um, and it kind of gives us a way it talks about <clears throat> it likes it it likens the portion of the film where uh, where Jed's head is exploded by a by a, a large a large caliber bullet to the Zapruder film um, it, it even like he goes down he gets really granular with the detail here um, he's talking about like Obviously, we have no access to it because this is not real. But like he's even like saying like, on this rail, on this frame, you see the bullet entering his head. You see the the uh, the bits of his head kind of like coming apart. And then that's when we get into like the very the very uh, blank pages where there's only a little bit of a word and, or there's only a few words, and you can you really kind of you're sinking in. In a very interesting this, so we were talking a lot about how some of the excesses of the the, the stylistic choices kind of negatively impact the book. I think this was actually a very good uh, stylistic choice. It's like you like really slowing down, like to only just a word or two words on a page. It creates even an emphasis. Blank, to really get you to absorb what's going on there. You know. Yeah, it creates an emphasis, and uh, the two that really stick out in my mind so far are that one with Jed's death, and the one with the mm-hmm. rope snapping when he's when they're hauling up Reston up the staircase. Mm-hmm. I really loved how they did that with um, when the rope was stretching and then snapping. You had the text stretching and then snapping. And I thought that was yeah. really cool. It almost it it gives you a it gives you a visual representation on the page without illustration, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool. I think I think that is, and I think you know I wanted to give 
Danielewski his fair due here. We were, you know, complaining a little bit about some of the excesses of the of some of these stylistic choices, but I think in those moments, it's actually very effective. And I I would like to see, you know, maybe some more more books try to really take that to really solidify these big moments and give them the sort of impact that they they deserve you know yeah i i think it's it's kind of a hard beast to straddle because with house of leaves that's kind of one of its selling points is it's weird off off kilter formatting scheme so i don't think you could necessarily do that in you know we'll just say like a sci-fi novel where you have and then in the space battle the main ship destroyed the enemy ship and you have that moment where it's the pov of the villain his ship's being blown up and if you spread that out across like three pages in like two sentences i don't think that would necessarily work in a book like that because it, it's something that really only lends credence to the way that the house of leaves is as a whole but <laughs> i think the conceptually in terms of taking a breath between moments and spacing them out and giving them a large emphasis without having to, like I said, illustrate it. It's something that should be looked into, I think, with other authors without having to essentially have a bunch of blank pages on your on your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think that's interesting. I, I would like that. I I don't know. I I might like to see some experimentation, even with in the example that you were saying, as like a kind of a counter example. I kind of was picturing it in my mind, and I kind of like it. I don't know. I think it might it's something that would be worth kind of exploring. Yeah, it's something that you would see in a movie where the pace kind of slows down and the music gets all slow tempo and you know one note and you have this moment where the character has a time slows down moment before the big consequence happens it's it's that (laughs) scene i don't have a specific example because my mind's blank but you know it's that scene I'm, i'm sure you know what i'm talking about i hope you know what i'm talking about at least with when i how i describe that uh it's like that in a literary form right yeah, I I can definitely see that. Um, that 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 is a good comparison. But yeah, I I really, I don't know. <clears throat> so that that's that's this interesting moment. So, and we're and we're left with um, Navidson and Reston. You know, they they, they their their shock and horror at seeing um, Jed just get executed there. Um, and then Reston has this moment that I I find very cool at least, <clears throat> where. It's revealed that he's he's been he's been bringing the uh, or he brought a, a an HK forty uh, five pistol with him, which I think that is the handgun that uh, Solid Snake uses in is it MGS one or MGS two? Uh, is which. that the SOCOM? Well, I think he actually uses the SOCOM in both of those. I think that that is the SOCOM. I think, or at least maybe like a civilian model of it. It says the HK forty five. Yeah, I think I think that's what it is. Well. I'm I'm sure you know any gun nuts who happen to be listening to this are are screaming and crying at uh, at our getting it wrong, but or am I getting it wrong? 
but I, anyway, I think it's 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 really cool. So he he draws that and he starts to return fire at the darkness. Since when did you bring a gun? Davidson asks, crouching near the door. Are you kidding me? This place is scary. You know. <laughs> yeah, that that line is kind of silly, but it's what it's whatever. Yeah, it's it's um, but it's it's um, the moment is cool though. I'm I'm very I'm very happy that Reston had had the handgun on him. Yeah. Um, and then later on, there's going to be the final showdown between Davidson and Holloway, and Holloway is going to be like, "It's over, Davidson. I have the high ground." And then Davidson's <laughs> going to be like, "But do you have this?" And he pulls out a hand grenade, and Holloway's like, "Where the hell did you get a hand grenade?" And he's just like, are you kidding me? This place is scary. Then he just throws the hand grenade at Holloway and just blows him <laughs> up. <laughs> but the camera is intact. Of course. That's what he... he re- that only just one piece of shrapnel just went through Holloway's head, but did not do yeah. anything else. It's a, it's, a, it's a standard issue hand grenade, which is not like the movies because it shoots out a... It's, it's an area of effect, like a dome of just pure shrapnel. That's how hand grenades work. It's not just a boom explosion. It's 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 just metal flying everywhere. But all that metal misses Holloway, except for one that goes right through his forehead and out the back of his head. And he's just like, you get one final, oh, and then he just falls over. And Davidson's like, whoa, what luck? My camera wasn't hit. And then <laughs> the stairs suddenly become two steps long. And he's like, oh, hell yeah. And he just takes his two steps up. And then he comes back out and his children hug him. And what's her, is it, what's her name? Karen? Yeah, Karen. Karen's like, oh my god, I love you. You're the greatest. And then they have eight more kids. And he gets another Pulitzer. Basically, they they entirely change the tone of the story. Uh, Oh, I I, I should tell you. This becomes the inflection point where this becomes like a a mid-tier network drama. Yeah, I should tell you, by the way, I finished the book last night. I'm actually talking about what happens. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, since you finished the book, did you did you know that they actually? Um, speaking of illustration, they did illustrate that scene. The one with the hand grenade. <laughs> no, they actually they actually did illustrate the scene with um, uh, Reston returning fire. Uh, I uh, haven't. Do you checked. have the book on you? I, I do. Turn to page uh, six fifty nine. I haven't checked any of the uh, appendixes or uh, exhibits yet. You well, said 659? It's a, mm-hmm, 659. I actually found this um, when I was trying to run down a reference in an appendix um, earlier. And I think, and I, then I realized when I was reading through it later, this is what it's referencing. It's kind of interesting. So you hear, you see the... Let me know when you get there, actually. Oh, yeah, I've seen this picture before. How have I seen this picture so, yeah, before? You, it's kind of interesting. It's it's a it's like this graphic novel kind of style of how of they they're being shot at and then you know Reston's returning fire and uh, Davidson is using the strobe of the of the flash to kind of show you where Holloway is in the darkness. This... So it's it's I don't know it's it, I thought that was kind of cool to show this that scene and they it shows them saying the same things like including the since when did you bring a gun you know did this picture come up earlier in the book I don't think so I think 
I seem to recall I found it when I was looking to read a, an appendix reference. Uh, I think specifically it was an appendix reference that said when you got there, actually this doesn't exist. Something to that effect. And it was kind of like, oh man, are you kidding me? I've seen this before. I've seen this exact picture before. I don't know. Yeah, what... I don't know. Maybe, maybe it did come up. Uh, maybe it was in because I've been watching a lot of, uh, not really like fringe YouTube, but like something more along the lines of, um, what was it called? Um, not, not like ARGs, but um. Things like Marble Hornets. What do they call that? It's um, it's called something horror. Is it like analog horror? Is that and, what thank you're talking you. Yes, about? exactly. Yeah, I, I've been watching a lot of YouTube channels that that cover like analog horror and true crime. So maybe it would have come up there. I don't know why it would come up there, but I don't. I can't think of what else it would be though, because it wouldn't have been on like Reddit or anything. That's weird. I've seen that before, and I can't remember where. How it, how topical too because it it would have been in the last couple of weeks since starting this book so mm -hmm. how how topical yeah it's pretty I don't know I thought it was a pretty cool moment um so but yeah I thought I thought that was interesting so anyway so they return start returning fire <clears throat> but obviously since they he's got him at range he's at a, an advantage and you know as he's shooting. The doors start slamming shut. Like he, it's he's standing at the end of a well, not the end obviously, but he's standing in this long hallway, and the doors kind of they're, they're slamming shut, one after another. There's the the pages are are mimicking this, and then then the it, the doors finally close and giving them you know, I mean obviously, Holloway is still like right there. He could charge at them and probably get to them but it gives them this moment of concealment and of reprieve you know and next thing we know they're back at the staircase yeah so how how it how it handled it with um them finding jed and wax was we get <laughs> it from the perspective of jed and wax with like a beating on the door and then we have the entire <laughs> navidson exp exp expedition uh side of things and then it's them getting to the door um <laughs> did you like me immediately suspect that it was Navidson uh, banging on the door when it was Jed and Wax's perspective before it even went into Navidson going down? I thought that was a possibility. I also thought there was a couple different possibilities. I was like, is this going to be like the... the? Are we going to finally see the Minotaur here? Is this Holloway? Or is this just like nothing at all? Is this just the house being weird? You know, yeah, I was. I, w I really wasn't sure what it was going to be. I was dead set on that being Davidson. I'm like, this is gonna be it, because it felt like that very stereotypical horror trope, where you think that it's impending doom, but then it ends up being your savior, and that's <laughs> that's what I exactly I thought it was going to be, like the bangings on the door, and I thought to myself, this is Davidson. This is absolutely Davidson. It's gonna be Davidson getting there. Especially since we know that time is all wonky there anyways. So, yeah, when Navidson and Reston were hearing the uh, the voices on the other side of the wall, I was I was like, all right, yeah, here it comes. This is when they're going to get to that door and bust it open and find them there. But, mm -hmm. you know, then it did it. It immediately followed with 
and then he got shot in the head. So that whole <laughs> it's your savior thing ended up being it is your it was essentially death knocking on the door. Yeah. In the end. But yeah, I I, I was thinking from the get go, this is absolutely Davidson. That's about to burst in. So I felt pretty cool about that. But like I said, it comes from a really not popular, but a, a, a frequently used trope. So it's not like I have some sort of crazy good instincts on where things are going to go. It's just, uh, yeah, it's probably going to be this because why wouldn't it be kind of thing. I think that's I, I I don't know I think you're probably I don't know I think I that's probably a good way to predict it is just get, it kind of follows the pattern and that kind of that's kind of interesting that here in this section I'm not I'm not sure if this is like intentional or not but like I was saying with the the little bit of the wonky dialogue that we're seeing here you know uh, particularly in regards to rest and it's are we just is he kind of doing this on purpose he's kind of leaning into this kind of tropey uh not only just dialogue but kind of tropey situations kind of occurring uh maybe i don't know it definitely feels kind of strange because it did kind of feel like it went from this found footage horror thriller story to now we are in an action scene Mm -hmm. and that's all fine and good but it definitely feels you already said this it feels like a tonal shift and i'm not with the with the exception of the dialogue bits and i don't mean to just beat that dead horse but I, i i'm not opposed to it necessarily either because i think there's there's you know it's a nice moment, especially with how he, he lays out the text. You know, it does a great job of uh, really emphasizing all of this moment. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't mind it so much. No, it's not that big of a deal. And it does kind of jump back to its, for lack of a better term, root. Mm-hmm. Not long after, once they get back to the staircase and the whole expansion happens while Rustin's going up. Mm-hmm. Which, um... Yeah. It's it's like this idea of the building and release of tension, kind of, too. Yeah. Which, I... If they would have just given me the number, I wouldn't have had a frame of reference, but that thing where, by Navidson's estimation, on how, because um, Tom was tossing quarters down, to let Navison mm-hmm. know that the person was up and they get start moving the next person up, uh, up the pulley system. Cause you know, it was Jed's dead body, uh, waxes dying body. And then Reston. he said it took about 51 minutes for that third coin to come down after the expansion happened while Reston was on his way up. And they have the whole bit where he's like, I don't know. It sounds like an impossible amount of length. And then the editors come in, or Zapano, I don't remember if it was Zapano or an editor, uh, saying that it was like 27,000 miles. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, wow, that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of miles. And then they're like, yeah, it's, it's, it's 
longer than the the circumference of the Earth from the equator or the or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's yeah. that that's a lot of miles. <laughs> and then that's kind of, and that that's kind of going back to what we were saying earlier. That's why I'm like, I don't even know that this could be considered this this space could be considered on Earth. You know? Yeah. That's kind of one of the things I was thinking about. Is it? It's. I don't know. It's just just this this is really bizarre. And the, I, that was a good really good sequence too. Like this idea of <clears throat> especially as Reston is going up. So they rescue. So they rescue. Uh, they bring. Wax, they, they give him a little bit of treatment, but they realize they're going to have to get out of there pretty quick. So they, they bring Wax out and, and Jed. They go into the, the back into the, the staircase. That's when he radios up, and we, we talked a little bit about it, where he radios up and he, he gets a hold of Tom. And there's this moment where, you know, Tom is, it looks like he's going to, he's going to do it. He's going to go down the stairs, which is like this big moment for Tom, because the whole time he's, the, a lot of what we hear from Tom <clears throat> during that the sort of like bit about where showing like what he's been doing while they're down there is basically talking to himself and then working himself into this fear frenzy uh, about about the uh, about the monster out, out there, and so he starts to he starts to descend when he hears the roar of I guess we will call it the monster the the minotaur whatever this thing is like right next to him and there's and he he sprints out and you know you're you're you feel this moment of oh man i can't believe tom he he's i feel bad but you know he's basically screwed them there and uh so but he comes back and he creates this pulley system and like you're saying he's pulling he's they set it up and they they or they get it and they start uh extracting uh wax and jed and so reston they load reston up and he's he's got it's got this cool visual like he he flips open a, a flare a green flare and you know he, he's describing seeing him you know as he's rising up up on the the pulley and then the rope it kind of like it it really tightens and it snaps and it goes through Navidson's hands and it, that was just a terrible I because I can just feel you know, just imagining it, just like ripping your flesh there, and just give that the rope burn. I'm good, man. And anyway, he he starts like going up really fast, and you know, it's it's this sort of like almost like crash effect. Like it's it's he's going up and up, and you you hear him like screaming, and I was like, oh, is Reston going to die here as the rope? You know, the rope seemingly you know, breaks, but um, no, nope. no, it's it's. He he manages to live, and uh, I don't know. I'm I'm glad for that. I think Reston is probably my the character I like most at this at this point. Yeah, and it kind of gets into this point at the the, the sort of um, this thing about the brothers and brothers and the, the biblical story of uh, Esau and and Jacob. God, that felt so useless. It it did in in a way because it didn't really link to. The, I don't. I didn't really see either as like a, an Esau or a Jacob. I think. I think those archetypes, you know, are very. <clears throat> there. I don't know why they are necessarily deployed there because I think, Navidson and Tom. It, I well, there's there's really all you, you you can you learn a lot more about them just 
by just saying that rather than the the story. Like this idea that Navidson, we know we mostly refer to him by his last name, and people that get referred to by their last name are usually of a certain vintage. You know what I mean? Like they're they're very they're usually very type A people that are very like serious and into their whatever their field is, their work. Um, and then you got Tom, you know, we refer to him as Tom, this, this very, which is a, in and of itself, it's a nickname, you know, you're, you're, you're constantly referring to him and, you know, you, to me, that's a lot more explicative and a lot more, uh, telling of the differences in their personalities than the, the, the story of Esau and Jacob, which is an interesting story. And one that I think, I think there's. I think we ought to really, I mean, I think there's there's some questions about why exactly Isaac made the choices that he did there um, and, and and to what, why, why the, uh, the, the blessing once conferred cannot be conferred to the other. I don't know. There's some interesting thoughts there, but um, I just don't really they, and feel, they also, go ahead. I just don't really feel like it's an apt comparison between the two of them because you just Correct. You have, you have two brothers one of which is like, I'm going to go be a famous photographer and put myself in danger and take these photographs and stuff. And then you have the other brother who's just a, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to live my life. Whatever, man. It's all cool. Just give me some beer and some weed and I'm a happy camper. And that's really kind of the extent of it. Like, yeah, there's I, the... I just, I just want to throw this out here really briefly. That is a kind of guy that cannot exist anymore. Like, they do exist, but they, like... They cannot live on the same standard of living that Tom did, and that is a real like Tom. He's able to take, like he at this point he's taken weeks off of work, and he's just like chilling, and like he's still he's still able to buy like all the booze and all the stuff that he wants. And it's it, that's kind of crazy in its own way. Like he's not a particularly industrious person, but he's able to, you know, afford all this stuff. Yeah. But, but I think it's it's kind of in, interesting this this because he tries to, or uh, Danielewski kind of contrasts them in this way like they they are both and this is another one of the big themes of this book this the 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 responses to to this traumatic their traumatic upbringing with their um, narcissistic parents and so you know you have one in Davidson who just he's he draws the line in the sand and he's you know. He's like, no, I will, the world will see me, the, I will do, you know, I will exert my will upon the world, and my life will go this certain way. And if it doesn't, well, at least I died, you know, trying. And then you have Tom, you know, there, who is very much a, you know, just kind of floating along kind of guy, like you were saying. And I think that was kind of interesting, is like, this, I thought that was a lot more interesting and a lot more apt than the specific invocation of uh, of of the story of Isaac and then the Jacob and Esau. Yeah, because I, I don't see how a story about a brother who outwits the other so he can get his father's blessing from God or whatever the hell it was. I don't see how that relates to two brothers who just are kind of diametric opposites. There is there was an estrangement, but the thing is they they are very unclear about why the estrangement happens, you know? Yeah. Because it says they they kind of 
here's the thing people talk about in the story they talk about tom in these very glowing terms like he's a great guy i love tom tom is the best you know he's and then but but you also get zampano um kind of implying that it's tom that and his his jealousy towards his brother uh i think he almost it's almost kind of he's forcing it and it's kind of incongruous with the other things he's writing because he wants to force this comparison of the two brothers one who has wronged the other and is he's jealous of the other you know it feels it, i thought that was very strange that he kind of then tried to like impute all the the blame of their um estrangement on tom in, in acting in ways that do not seem to comport with earlier descriptions of him yeah, yeah. Um, we spent a lot of time on Davidson today, and barely any on Johnny, which I feel like has more to do with what's going on in their respective storylines right now, more so than anything else. Because I do feel like there are things that are worth talking about with Johnny's storyline right now, but it definitely doesn't feel near as pressing. It's just more of a here's more of a day in the life kind of situations. I don't. I like I said, there's there's exceptions there. Like the the Pekingese story, which I I know we'll, we'll we'll want to talk about, but I feel like there's not a lot of new information compared to Navidson. So I think I think we should probably save Johnny for next week, so we can probably have kind more of to go off of. That oh sorry, I I was I just meant to say it's kind of interesting that we've done this where we've created this. We've kind of seemingly fallen into the same uh, dynamic of the story itself, where we're like doing one story a week. Was I think last week was a was pretty much all Johnny. Yeah. And now it's pretty much all Navidson, and now we're gonna go back to all Johnny next week. Oh, maybe not all Johnny. I guess we'll see how Navidson goes, because I feel like the stuff we needed to talk about about Johnny last time was it was pretty dense. There was a lot to go on, and in terms of the Navidson, it was well. Here's about. 15 pages talking about the the formula of an echo anyways also yeah holloway's kind of a dickhead all right cool anyways back to johnny which i feel like this is turning into more of johnny's story than zapano's story <laughs> which you know i said zapano is kind of fading out of the narrative yeah not fully but he's a lot a lot less important relatively speaking yeah and you know i, I said this time i said last time that i prefer johnny's storyline so i'm fine with that but yeah, I think there's a lot we could probably delve into next week since we're kind of low on time today. But uh, something I wanted to bring up that I found kind of funny, uh, this was completely unintentional on our parts, but I realized that for every episode we've done so far, we've covered four chapters of the book. Hmm. That is kind of interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I, I don't. I, that was not planned at all. It wasn't. It just kind of happened. It was that originally way. planned that we would do nine chapters. Well, we, we would do eight. We'd we'd stop at the start of chapter nine. Oh, true. But yeah, it, this was. It's interesting that we've we've kind of broken it into these four chapter chunks. Yeah, just purely purely coincidental. And I looked, and if we kept that pattern going, we would finish the Navidson record. At episode six, which I'd like to be on another book by then, personally. I don't want to spend <laughs> six episodes on, on one book. But 
I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. I, yeah, we'll see. Um, I feel very vindicated ahead. right now because at the end of the last episode, I said that we were at the cusp of the book breaking down in terms of its format. And I said I wouldn't be surprised if we started this episode somewhere in the 200 or 300 page range and we stopped at page 313 for this one. <laughs> which sounds like a lot because we started on what page 107 for this episode. Yeah. Uh, but it's not because I went from in two hours, I went from page 122 to 246. And I'm not the fastest reader. So being able to do 124 pages in two hours means that, a lot of those pages are not full pages. I, I think I would equate it to about 30 to 40 full-length pages across that 124. So, yeah, the book broke down real quick. So those yeah. 206 pages that we read for for this chapter, for, for this episode, were not 206 pages, realistically. I, I honestly don't even think i'd call it 100 pages or even 80 for that matter i think it's about like 70 75 somewhere in there maybe but yeah it's it's nice to see that progress in terms of opening my book and seeing how much i've covered and how much is left it's nice to see that progress finally feeling like i've made a dent in the book Mm -hmm. but i haven't skimmed too far ahead of where we're at so i don't know how that's going to go moving forward i know that that i know that chapter 13 is full pages from start to finish and it's like 30 pages long so i think chapter 13 is going to be a more dense read than probably 9 10 and 11 combined or no i'd say mm-hmm. maybe 9 10 and 12 combined 11 was pretty pretty dense considering Yeah, there, there might be kind of breaking into um, these different. Uh, that that might be the kind of the thing now. It's like the pattern of like dense and then more open and then dense again. You know. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't want to throw a an estimation out there. I think I think saying like four hundred is be pretty safe. Uh, I looked and the Navison record goes to like five hundred something. I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. what it was. Um, wow, I opened almost to the end of the Davidson record. Three, I, I opened three pages away from the Davidson record. It goes to 528. In a perfect world, I would like to be done with the Davidson record by next Saturday. That's, in terms of the book itself, 215 pages. <clears throat> Given that we just covered 206, I don't think it's impossible. I did that in two nights, by the way. Uh, which, like I'm I said... I'm right here. Well... I, I even like I said it's it's not it's not actually two hundred and six pages that we read it was more like sixty seventy and I think sixty or seventy pages I'm, I'm, I'm just very no 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 you listen here okay I <laughs> I I am a very very good reader okay okay I'm very confident in my reading skills and I'm very proud of myself all right you you studied at the um you studied at the the academy for for boys who don't read so good, right? I studied at Oxford Dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel like 
averaging about 30 pages a night because I would say it's like 60, 70. So 30, 35 pages a night is, is <laughs> that's, that's uh, honestly, I feel like that's kind of a small, a small amount of reading because I had a night where I went, Oh God, I had a night where I read like a hundred pages in American psycho in one sitting. I had, I think I read the entire second half of silence of the lambs in one sitting. And that was like a 350, 370 page book. So mm-hmm. I feel like saying I read 30 pages a night really isn't that much. Yeah. But with that, I feel like if I didn't start reading it three days before we filmed this on one given two weeks to read, uh, I think I could possibly finish Navid's record before next week, but I actually have to. It, it comes down to me actually reading. That's the, that's the problem. There's... I need to sit down and read. Yeah. There's one thing I do want to do also. Uh, I, 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 I assume, I know we've talked a little bit about it, uh, but I, and I assume some, you know, if, if anybody's, you know, followed along with this uh, or know, knows a bit about the book, um, uh, Danielewski's sister um, was actually, or is, I suppose, a musician. And she wrote a, uh, a, an album that works as kind of like a companion piece to the book um i don't know that that's a we we don't necessarily have to do like a full review of the album track by track breakdown necessarily but that's something i would also kind of like to work in at least as we get close to the end maybe when on when we know we're gonna we've got like the next discussion will be the last uh for this particular topic i would kind of like to work that in as well welcome to episode one of the sad boys music club In my dreams, in my only in my dreams. But well, I, 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 I think that would be interesting because it was written and conceived of as a companion piece. Yeah. And I think it might be uh, useful, at least in some way of our in, in in our interpretation of the book. Yeah, that's definitely something that's worth looking into for sure. But yeah, in a perfect world, I'd like to be done with the Navidson record by next Saturday. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's the, we we have the the exciting um, like a dragon Ishin is going to be coming out on uh, Tuesday. So I'm going to I'm going, but I'm going to I, I promise I'm going to keep up keep pace with wherever you need to <laughs> you need me to be. But I don't know if I will be able to finish uh, for next time anyway. Yeah, but with that, I think that's a nice stopping point. We we covered. We, we got caught up on Navidson, at least by in terms of where we're at in the book, which is something that we could not have said for episode one and two. So that's nice. Yeah, this was a very Navidson-heavy episode, but... There was yeah, a lot I, to digest. Like said, I, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I guess, I guess we can go ahead and uh, wrap this up here, and um, next time we will, we will we'll be a little further on in the book, and Hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be making some more progress. Yeah. Tune in next week for the final episode of House of Leaves. That's right, baby. We're reading 400 pages this week. We're going to go through the rest of Davidson. We're going to go through the, the exhibits. We're going to go through the appendix. And I'm going to read the glossary, too. <laughs> you, you never know. There might be some secrets in the glossary. <laughs> yeah, no. I guess we'll All see. Right, well, we'll see where we end up. Yeah, 
Well, I'd like to, you know, thanks again, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Yep. Have a good weekend.